Good evening. You're welcome to Fitzroy. My name is Steve Stockman, privileged to be the minister here, and I know there's many visitors with us tonight, so thank you very much for coming along. Uh, I'm not sure what you think you're coming to. Uh, maybe you heard this morning on the radio, and or maybe you've read um, our uh, series about how to read the Bible. This is part of that series. So we've been doing this series over the course of last year. We've been going through uh, a book of the Bible every month. Um, we've been reading it as a congregation, and then we've been bringing somebody to take us into the text, the context, what that, the intentions of the original writers were in those books, and it has helped us to grasp uh, a lot of uh, the scripture that maybe we are very lazy about in Northern Ireland because we read our Bible a lot, but I'm not sure we uh, know how to read it in its proper context. So this series has been... Uh, quite a successful series, and uh, this is the first one of the new series, but Mark will not be talking about a specific book. Um, he is going to give us a Jewish perspective on how to read the Old Testament, which I'm fascinated about, and um, you're very welcome. One Jew's perspective. Yes, he keeps saying to me, I'm not speaking for the whole lot, so um, much as I don't speak much for the whole of Presbyterianism. Um <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so you're very welcome. Uh, Mark's going to come now that we're all set up, and uh, I'm going to pray before he does. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have the biblical texts. We thank you that in the country we come from, that we have freedom to read them. And not only that, but from a very young age, we're encouraged to read them, we're uh, preached and taught about them. And yet sometimes, Lord, uh, we're grappling with things that are so many uh, centuries, millennia old that we can misread, we can not understand the intentions of the writer that you inspired. So we pray that tonight uh, might be another in that series. We pray for Mark as he speaks to us. We pray that we would have ears to listen and that we would be able to uh, hear things, critique things, and that by your Spirit you would help us tonight to find out more about Scripture and more about you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, you're very welcome. Thank you for your prayer, Steve. Uh, it's always helpful. And, uh, and for opening up this wonderful Bible study series to me, I'm very, very impressed that uh, this is this is the kind of response you get for Bible study. It's terrific. And thank you also to Paul, wherever you are, for doing the, the legwork to get this going. My first time in Belfast. It's a lot to take in. And quite wonderful. And quite wonderful to be back in Ireland as well. It's my first time up north. Uh, and we are going to do Bible study. So we are going to get right into uh, text. Um, just a, a, a quick introduction. Uh, I am a Jewish American, uh, born in 1948. If you're a Jewish kid born into a traditional Jewish family in uh, an eastern city of the United States in that year, which is the year of the establishment of the State of Israel, you were raised in a very potent combination of uh, rabbinic Judaism, you know, mainline Judaism, and political Zionism. The two are inextricably connected. 
you will uh, discover soon enough that I don't think that's a good thing. Um, and in fact, before the establishment of the state, um, across the board, Orthodox through conservative through reform, um, organized Judaism uh, institutionally was not Zionist, not in favor of welding nationalism and religion. Uh, if it's not a good idea for Christians and not a good idea for Muslims, why should it be a good idea for Jews? Well, I think you know the answer to that question. It has a lot to do with modern 20th century history, but I'm going to get into that. And that's where one Jew's perspective um, comes in. I was on the radio this morning on BBC Northern Ireland, and uh, in order to balance things, uh, they paired me with uh, a fellow who speaks a lot, I think, uh, as a mouthpiece for the organized Jewish community here in Belfast. Um, and uh, it went fine. Anybody hear it? Yeah. I thought it went okay. I, I, I'm always walking into those things with some trepidation. But at one point, if it was going to be necessary, I was going to say, I just want to make it clear that I do not speak for all Jews or for the Jewish community, and neither does he. And the old Jewish expression is, if you give me two Jews, you'll have three opinions. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> but in fact, there is a very, very serious conversation going on within the Jewish community today. We are in deep, deep trouble. I can think of other words as well, but sin would be, we'll start with S, and that one of them is sin. And it's an extreme, it's a contentious conversation. It's a desperate conversation. I feel desperate about it. Uh, and it's a conversation that needs to continue if we are to make it through this as a faith community at all. It's a conversation that I encourage uh, you Christians, I'm assuming this room is, everyone here is, is, is Christian, whether you go to church or not. There may be some Jews, there may be Muslims, there may be people who claim no particular faith community at all. But I'm assuming, I'm, I'm speaking to Christians, that's been my beat, that's been my ministry that I came into without intending to do that. Uh, and my, um, my plea to Christians is to let us Jews have our family argument. You get on with putting your own house in order with respect to how you deal with this human rights issue, which is, I think, one of the most serious today. Not that Palestinian suffering is the worst in the world. I've been to Sudan. I've been to other places. It's not. But 70-plus years of ethnic cleansing, displacement, and dispossession without even a whisper of a hope for a right of return and making it right, that's serious. And I believe that that is unprecedented. So let's begin. If we had more time tonight, I would talk about South Africa. I'm here in the company uh, with Kairos, Ireland, and we're going to hopefully we'll have time to make a, a quick pitch about Kairos, Ireland to you, and the magnificent Kairos, Ireland uh, booklet is available uh, on that table. Uh, and they brought me. Um, and my two colleagues, Brian Brown, who now lives in England, but is South African and was part of that struggle, and Rifat Cassis, 
who is very much engaged in the Palestinian struggle um, today. I will talk a lot about Palestine. I will talk less about South Africa, but if I had time for a whole other lecture, we would talk about what the South Africans did theologically and ecumenically to bring about the end of apartheid. And it's an important story. And if you want to read what I believe is the most important um, document of contextual theology of the 20th century, just Google it, uh, Kairos, South Africa, 1985. A challenge to the church, and that is significant. So I was in South Africa, this was 2015, at a conference organized by the South African Council of Churches, uh, Desmond Tutu's uh, old outfit. And they had organized a workshop on the Holy Land. And I and several others, uh, all South Africans and Palestinians, were there to give a presentation about what's going on in Palestine, theologically and in terms of human rights. And uh, about 50 people turned up, mostly black, almost all clergy were church-related. Um, for the most part, the church in South Africa is theologically conservative. Various stripes, reform, there's the Dutch Reformed Church, very Calvinist. And the uh, African churches are also theologically very Bible-based, almost literalist, very conservative. They know their Bible, which means they know the Old Testament as well as the Gospels. So we spent the morning basically talking about Palestine, deconstructing or disabusing people of the myths of who is really, who's got whose foot on whose neck, and what is going on also theologically in terms of how the Bible is being used to justify um, that oppression. It doesn't take long for a South African, white or black, but especially black, to catch on to what that's about. In the afternoon, we broke up into smaller groups, and I was sitting in a small group just to talk about things and to reflect on what they had heard. And there was this one man, a large man, a large black man, purple, he's a bishop, Methodist bishop. That means sort of something different in Southern Africa than it does in Northern Europe. Okay? Across as, you know, as big as my chest. This was a bishop. And he turned to the rest of that group and he said, and he looked at me and he said, okay, you've turned us around. Thank you. I get it, because he hadn't gotten it before. He didn't know. I get it. The Palestinians are being oppressed. Um, they're being ethnically cleansed. They're being racially uh, segregated and dispossessed. And the Bible is being used to justify it. We have to go back and reread our Bibles, he said. This just blew my mind, because he said it. He got it. That's the message that I wanted them to get. But then he said something even more significant in my mind. He turned to his secretary and he said, how are we going to bring this back to our people, to our congregation, to our church community? They will accuse us of going against the inerrant holy word of God. And that, to my mind, is really the question. Uh, in the uh, at tea time and while I was trying to make my way to the toilet, the, I was besieged 
by um, young men, mostly, from various churches saying, can you come to my church? They were hungry for this because somehow they knew that they had to respond, that this was a human rights issue par excellence, that they had somehow not been able to access because of misinformation and because of the Bible. So this is what we're about. And so when I was invited uh, to present this Bible study, and apparently you're doing the Old Testament, right? I said, okay, that's great. We're going to do the Old Testament. We're going to do the Old Testament as it pertains to land. And I'll use slides because, you know, instead of having you rifle through your Bibles or giving out handouts, we're going we're to do some text. And by the way, we're not going to stop uh, at the end of the Old Testament. We're going to go into the Gospels because that's what's important in understanding this issue of land. You stop with the Old Testament, you stop too soon. So here's the basic thesis. Does the name Michael Pryor ring a bell? A countryman of yours? A renegade Irish priest, the best kind, Catholic. Um, he, uh, he died too soon uh, of, a, of, a, of a heart attack in 2004. Um, I'm a follower of his. When I discovered him, it was like, oh, thank you. He spent some time in Palestine. And this, I'm not quoting from him, but this is his basic thesis and his basic critique, and it's the one that I'm going to present to you as well. It's pretty gutsy. His book, which I recommend to you, you will not find it in bookstores. It's out of print. Uh, if you want to find it, you can try Amazon. It will be outrageously expensive. But go to a website called Abe Books, A-B-E-B-O-O-K-S. It's a great alternative to Amazon, by the way, for a whole variety of books. See if you can find his books, and this one in particular, Zionism and the State of Israel, a moral inquiry. Moral is the important word here. It's a moral critique. It's a moral analysis of how the Bible has been um, misused. And he is issuing a plea to exegetes, to scholars, and to clergy, and I would say to people in the pews as well, to start reading the Bible in a very different way with respect to this particular issue. And he doesn't mince words. You know, he went to Palestine and he got angry. As did I. As did, I'm sure, many of you who've had that experience. I got angry. I got horrified. I got saddened. And he felt the same way. But he was feeling it not just as a priest, not just as a human being, you know, but as a lover, you know, as a lover of Jesus. Now, in 2009, the Palestinians, of the Christians of Palestine, got together ecumenically and wrote another prophetic document using the word kairos, taking the cue from the South African, basically calling on the people of the world, their brothers and sisters, Jewish, in Israel, but especially the churches saying, what is the church doing for us? 
What is the church doing in response to this? And it is a document of theology. Uh, one of the um, authors and architects of that document is, is, is in our midst tonight, uh, Ephod. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about, about this. Um, but here's the theological argument. And this is what Pryor felt in living in Palestine and seeing what was being done in the name of the Bible. And again, they're not mincing words. And what they say is, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, it is our duty to resist tyranny. We cannot sit back and allow this to happen to us because in doing so, it's a, a wound in the body of Christ. So that's by way of introduction. Let's get into the theology of land. Now, you know, those of you who have... Uh, Windows computers, I think you're already up to 10.1 or 11.0 or whatever, okay? So this is the model that I'm using for talking about king versions of kingdom of God. The idea is that one builds on the next, and it's better than the one before, and it gets you farther. So I've divided up um, these phases of the theology of land into three. And the first two are Old Testament, and the last is New Testament, and that's the one that's been left out with respect to land. So very briefly, Kingdom of God 1.0 is the Abrahamic promise, and it goes right through to the book of Joshua. Usually we don't pay much attention to the book of Joshua, but many people talk about the Hexateuch. It's an important book, and we're going to be blessed with it some sampling of it, and we usually don't read it. Kingdom, uh, Kingdom of God 1.5, we're getting into the prophetic literature, which is a challenge to the abuses of monarchy and temporal power. And then 2.0 is when we get to Jesus. And let's go through this now. Genesis 12, important chapter. This is where the promise, the original covenant, uh, is first articulated. And when we talk about covenant, covenant people, people of God, this is where it starts. Unfortunately, this is pretty much usually where it stops. Uh, I was talking to, um, I don't think he made it here. Day at the at the, um, at the monastery at the, no. yeah yes he's not here yeah um, there's a problem with the translation of that line uh, and if we had the Hebrew in front of us we would talk about it um, but the Christian Zionists will say you we must if we want to be blessed we must bless Israel if we don't we will be cursed we don't have time to get too deeply into Christian Zionism. But the basic idea is that when the last 
non-Jew uh, is cleansed from Jerusalem, Jesus will come the next day. And so we must bless Israel, meaning the state of Israel, um, so that we may be blessed and so that the second coming can happen as soon as possible. Of course, the story is not great for the Jews after that. Uh, there's this, you know, we don't get raptured very much, and the lake of fire is not a nice place to be. But that doesn't really matter to the Christian Zionists, and it also doesn't matter very much to the people in charge of the state of Israel, who are very, very willing to play along with the Christian Zionists, because they don't believe any of that stuff anyway, but they'll, they'll get into bed with them. Let's go on with this um, Abrahamic promise and this covenant. I want you to pay attention in particular to the second paragraph. This is where the real estate part of the covenant deal gets articulated and specified. The boundaries are set out. Not only the boundaries, but the actual people, the indigenous people that are going to have to go away and be gotten rid of. So Pryor talks about this. He says, is our God really the God of ethnic cleansing? What do we do with this? Why aren't we looking at this? Because they're specified. Now Pryor also talks about the fact, and Israeli archaeologists and historians and biblical scholars agree, that the Bible is not a historical document. In fact, if you take a look at the place names, just for an example, if you take a look at the place names during the wanderings through Sinai from Egypt into the Promised Land, they're all 8th century place names, you know, 8th century BCE. They didn't exist in the 11th century, 300 years before, where if you do the math with the biblical generations in Genesis and Exodus, that when the Exodus would have occurred. So the Exodus didn't happen. There might have been a small family that went down to Egypt and then migrated back up into Canaan, but the exodus didn't happen. And in fact, the whole Davidic dynasty, with, you know, from, the, from the Euphrates to the Nile, didn't happen either. Something happened there with another tribe living in the hills. But the Bible is not a historical document. It's a myth of origin. It's a story that around the 7th or 8th century, when it was redacted, uh, the rulers in Judea who were looking to take over the, the, the territories in, in the Galilee as well, wanted to tell themselves about where we come from and where we come from and why we have the right to live here and to take this land is because it comes from God. It's a myth of origin. Now, the Bible is many things, and it's many wonderful, miraculous things, and the best things about Christianity, of course, spring from it. But it's also that. And that can be abused if it is treated as history and if it is treated as a deed to territory. Moving on to Exodus. This is a speech, you know, God speaking through Moses to the people, which is mostly what happens um, in Exodus and right through the rest of the four books of the, of, of, uh, the five books of, of Moses, 
Um, here's where we get the exceptionalism. You are my chosen people. You are my special people. If you abide by my commandments and you continue to be loyal to me as a God, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I was raised on this. I was told that we were chosen for a special mission, to be a light to the nations, to use another biblical quote. Now, something in me always said, am I really that special? And I was told, no, no, this doesn't mean you're special. You're just like everybody else, but you're on a mission from God. So that was the mixed message. And this is very, very much a part of this um, idea of covenant and part of the Jewish psyche. Um, a sensibility that was reinforced over 2,000 years of being victimized. When we look at peoples who have been victimized and beaten down, Afrikaners um, certainly were, were one such group. Um, I think the Ulster Plantation was another such group, feeling that you know, we have to protect ourselves. Um, this kind of uh, sensibility in this kind of reading of the Bible becomes very, very important and very, very positive. It's certainly true for me, and it really fed in to modern Zionism. Even though the early Zionists, they were, they were socialist atheists from Russia and from Eastern Europe. They didn't believe in God. But you take God out of it, and it sounds like the same kind of, of discourse. We are special. We will rise up out of our humiliation and our degradation and our victimization, and we will be strong, and, and we will take this land because God wants us to have it. And here again is the actual outlines of the deed to the land. Okay, So we're very, very much in the kingdom of God, 1.0. God comes to one family, one tribe. They, they grow, they prosper, they turn into a nation. And they are then commanded to do this. It's kind of a long slide. It violates the rules of slides. But the thing is that this, this set of instructions and this catalog is very important to, to read and to understand because it's very, very specific. And it's very, very clear and notice the word exterminated. We don't like seeing that kind of word in our holy book, do we? But there it is. And at our peril, we ignore it. Or we leave it out of the lectionary. We don't like to talk about it. But it's important, not because it's an unpleasant piece of the literature that we would like to get rid of, but because it has played a real role in how the Bible has been used over the centuries. Now here's another thing that's really important. I'll, I'll come back to this theme over and over again. It's not kosher. It's not politically correct. It's not considered right for Christians in the post-Holocaust era 
to talk about the Old Testament as tribal, New Testament universal, Old Testament archaic, New Testament enlightened. That's supersessionism. That's replacement theology. That led to the ovens. That is something that the church and Christians have to repent of. And that's all true. Supersessionism, replacement theology, it's not biblical. It was an invention of the church. It was a very bad thing. And it's still around. So we don't want to talk about the Old Testament as being somehow um, inferior to, or heaven forbid, replaced by the New Testament, where the Old Covenant is being over and the New Covenant as being now in force. And yet, when you look at Kingdom of God 1.0, you see that even though the land promise is conditional to obedience to God, it's never taken off the table. You repent, you pay your dues, you get it back. And the Old Testament ends, and this is what, you know, Ezekiel was a priest. He came back from Babylonia in the 6th century with the exiles, along with Ezra and Nehemiah, who were the architects of rebuilding the society back in Judea. It was to rebuild the temple. It was always going to re be rebuilt, regardless of the Deuteronomic conditionality, as, as it's called. Apologists for Zionism will always say, well, yes, the Jews get the land, but they have to deal justly with the stranger, which is also an interesting word to use. But that doesn't take away the, po the power of the promise. In fact, it underlines it. It says, it's, it's not really conditional. You always get it back. I will never take away my love for you. I will never take away this promise that you will be special and these you will be the inheritors of the land and you can do whatever you want to get it. In fact, you must do what I command you, which means don't even leave a cow alive. So now we're on to 1.5. Now Samuel chapter 8 is a really, really important chapter. We don't spend enough time on it. Because he really was, it's in the book of Judges, but he, he was considered a judge, but he really is the first uh, in this prophetic tradition of speaking truth to power. The people ask for a king, and Samuel says, God is king. Why would you want a king? And he goes to God and says, what should I do? And, uh, you know, God says, go ahead and tell them what the king is going to do. And he outlines all the abuses of power. You're going to take your sons. You're going to enslave your daughters. They're going to tax you to death. Go ahead and let them have the king. You think maybe it's part of the plan, some sort of a dialectic, that perhaps then they would realize the error of their ways and turn back to God. I'm not sure. I'm not in the mind of God. But this is what happens in this narrative. And then, just for shorthand, you have this gorgeous literature, prophetic literature, which has many things in it, but you know, this is a very, of course, 
iconic, famous passage from Amos. And it's pretty strong stuff. It's not only does it take aim at kings, it takes aim at the whole theocracy, at the whole temple cult, at the, the law, if you will, and the ritual as being empty and basically corrupt. We're starting to get some hint about what might be coming with this rabbi carpenter from Nazareth who's going to be coming along at some point. But through it all, we go back to thinking about Ezekiel. He was a prophet. And his job is to bring the people back and to restore the temple. So even with the prophetic admonitions against the corruption of power and against the, the, the fundamental betrayal of God's will in, in the creation of an alternative society of justice and compassion, which is what the civil code of the Torah is all about. Jubilee, nobody gets rich, right? It's wonderful. They never step out of the tribal framework. It's always us and them. And we remain God's chosen and God's special people. It's still about us and the, those others called strangers have to be treated fairly, but they're still the other. Now again, growing up as a Jew in the mid-20th century, not experiencing anti-Semitism myself, this resonates very, very strongly because, now I'll let you in on them, some tribal secrets. You know the word goyim? You ever heard this? It means, it's roughly translated Gentiles, but semantically, the way I was growing up, goyim means an ignorant, drunken rabble that wants to kill me. That's you lot. And that sensibility, that sense of fear, and if you want to understand modern Israel and modern Israelis and modern Zionism, fear is a, probably the most important word. This resonates with me. It comes right down through 2,000 years straight. It, 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 it's set up in the Bible. So when we study the Old Testament, we have to take this very seriously. Why? Because of the siege of Gaza. Because of the checkpoints in the West Bank. Because of the children who were arrested under detention for throwing stones at tanks and are tortured. Because of all that Zionism means not just about Palestine, but in terms of the whole order of our world, which is, continues to be based, and maybe more and more, is based on xenophobia and on feeding greed and on exploiting the 99% of humanity. The Bible can be used for that. So, that's why Kingdom of God 2.0 was so important. And that's why Jesus is so important. And that's why the church, with its record of actually changing the political wind 
at crucial times. I'm talking about the civil rights movement in my own time, in my own country. I'm talking about how the church helped turn around uh, governments to support the sanctions against South Africa in the 80s. So 2.0, here's another book I recommend to you. Gary Burge is a Presbyterian pastor in the United States, very closely associated with evangelicals, progressive evangelicals in America. He's bold. He breaks the rules, the rules of saying, please don't say that the Old Testament is not in force and the covenant is not still in force and that, and be apologetic about being Christian. He's not apologetic about being Christian and he's a New Testament scholar and he says, if you take a look at the New Testament, it's an anti-territorial polemic. And that the land is the thing that slips away and is replaced with a whole new vision of what it means to be human and what it means to be a follower of the one God. It is revolutionary. You don't find it in the Old Testament. It was bold. It was radical. Bird says that that's what the Jews were arguing about in the first century. That religion then was territorial. Gods belonged to particular peoples and to particular pieces of land where those peoples lived. And when we talk about Pentecost, we'll spin this out a bit when we finally get to the New Testament texts. Anybody want to, this is kind of a quiz, anybody want to guess where this, what text speaks to this? It's in one of the Gospels. We'll get to it. <clears throat> Here's another politically incorrect statement. A relapse into Judaism? Doesn't that sound anti-Semitic? Doesn't that sound triumphalist and exceptionalist? If a Christian says it, we're relapsing into Judaism? This is Karl Barth. But the issue is territoriality. Judaism, in its origin, and I'm saddened to say, in its current incarnation as being merged with ethnic nationalism, is territorial. Now, the problem is, and you can say the same thing about Christianity in the church, when the temple was destroyed in 70, and the Jews lost their hegemony in this piece of land, a whole new Judaism was created. It was called rabbinic Judaism. And we still talked about and prayed about the temple and about next year in Jerusalem in our liturgy, but nobody took that literally. We were dispersed, and we recreated ourselves in the diaspora in synagogues. No more temple worship. That was good. Why would we relapse into this? And what Burge is saying is, if you read your, old your New Testament, that's what is articulated in the Incarnation. 
when God becomes man, it's for a particular reason, one of them being to say something very specific about what it means to follow God and what it means to have a temple and to lose it and what it means to be connected with land or not. A couple of key texts. This is one of my favorites. It blew my mind when I read this. Now, you have to understand that growing up and until I was you know, middle-aged, I was still following the implicit or instructions of my growing up, which is the Bible is the Old Testament. You don't open up the New Testament. It's like what people say about opening up the, the, the Islamophobes talk about opening up the Quran. Fire will come out of the pages and consume you. Because Jesus meant fear. Jesus meant destruction. Jesus meant the Cossacks coming to kill you in the middle of the night. I mean, that's the tragedy of, 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 of church, uh, the history of the church and the Jews. So when I may meet the Palestinian Christians and they introduce me to Jesus and to the Gospels, and they talk about Jesus, as I said, you know, I said, how do you persist? How do you go on in your land when it keeps getting taken away from you and the rest of the world hates you and calls you terrorists? They say, we follow Jesus. You know, he was a Palestinian Jew who lived in the Roman occupation. He gave us the blueprint for what it means to resist, nonviolently, of course. So when I come across texts like this, it speaks very strongly to me. Because I say, well, this is, this is the best rabbi of all. This is the best Jew. He was taking his people in the direction that they needed to go because the Roman Empire was killing them spiritually as well as physically. And he had a bold new vision that articulated in this passage. You know, this other, this Samaritan woman says to him, you know, Rabbi, why are you talking to me? You worship on this mountain, and we worship on that other mountain. And it's brilliant what he says to her. He says, it's not going to be about mountains. It can't be about mountains. And the mountain he's referring to, of course, is Zion, where the temple is built. He's deconstructing it. It's a very bold political statement. It's enough to get you killed. Next text, okay? We all know about driving out the moneylenders. But this scene in front of the temple, now, check it out. Jesus comes to Jerusalem for his, you know, his, his final act as the incarnate being. He doesn't go to, the, uh, to Herod. He doesn't go to the Roman temple, to the Roman uh, palace. He goes to the heart of the beast that he was really confronting, his own people, his own church, if you will, his own synagogue. And he stands at the temple and says, this is coming down. And the, the, you know, the apostles, who were sort of his straight men, said, well, how is that possible? They've been rebuilding this thing for 46 years. It's bigger and better than ever. How are you going to rebuild it in three years? And so then the narrator, the, the evangelists, to, to make sure we get the theology, make it very clear, this is a parenthetical gloss. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Temple becomes body of Christ. Tyranny, empire, greed, power is transformed into one humanity, united, inequality, in love, and compassion. It's a bold political statement. It sets it 
all out. That's what's happening here in the New Testament. That's kingdom of God 2.0. Of course, Jesus' famous, uh, famous saying, this, this kingdom is, my kingdom is not of this world. If you translate the, from the Greek, what he's saying is, cosmos is system. This system has to, has to go. And the temple represents that. Now, there are temples all over the world now, today. That's the mission of the church, is to say, this has to go. And then finally, Pentecost. So Jesus has been crucified. He keeps turning up. Of course, they don't recognize him. I mean, it's, metaf- it's very symbolic. The message is, they didn't know him when they had him. And this is a theme that keeps recurring. And he says, finally, he's recognizing this is go to Jerusalem. It's Passover. It's just Passover. Pentecost is coming. It's quote, it's a Jewish festival based agriculturally. It comes 50 days after Passover, 49 to be exact. Go to Jerusalem, wait from there, and you will get the power of the Holy Spirit. And what do they ask him? Ah, great. The power of the Spirit is coming. You're going to restore the kingdom, right? Meaning temple, king, borders, army. They still don't get it. He says, just go to Jerusalem. Wait for it. And what happens? What's the power that they get? What's the power that they get? So the next slide, but somebody, sorry? The Holy Spirit, yes, and what does the, when the, when the Holy Spirit knocks them down and they stand up, what's the power that they've been given? Speaking all the languages of the world. And there's a catalog of all those languages, and historians have looked at that and they've said, These are the known languages that were spoken in the Mediterranean basin of the time. So what's the message? What's the power of the Spirit? Well, it's get the hell out of Jerusalem. Go into the wide world. Bring the message. This is for everybody. It's not one language. It's it's the, the other bracket from Babel. Spirit gave them the ability to speak all the languages of the world. The Pentecostals got it wrong. Speaking in tongues like nothing you can understand? No. It's speaking to say you can be understood universally with no one particular language. So, that's the trajectory of land theology in the Bible. It's very powerful, and it's key to understanding the the Jesus revolution, the radical transformation of the faith and of the the worldview and the the sense of identity of what it means to be a people that was brought by the New Testament. That's why the covenant has to be replaced. So covenant peoples, whether it's Africa, whether it's the Plymouth Brethren 
and the pilgrims coming to, to the, the continent where I live and saying, we're going to build a shining city on the hill and uh, we're going to bring God to this savage land, which means exterminate them or at least take everything they have and make them serve us. And we can go through many, many examples of that. That covenant is wrong. And it is not with God. And that's what Jesus was saying. Uh, let's hold them. Okay. Okay, because I've only got a little bit of time and I want to finish um, making a few other key points about bringing it home to where we are today. But please hold your question because that's the best part is when we can start to talk. So back to prior. Um, and this book that I recommend to you. So that's his critique. And again, he's being unapologetically Christian. And he's saying, this is the responsibility of biblical scholarship. In, in our day, any biblical scholarship that does not take this on <clears throat> doesn't deserve to be practiced. Now, now, this guy's angry. He's being very polemical. And I agree with him completely. What is the point of Bible study if it does not help guide us to deal with the most challenging issues of our time? That's why we do Bible study. And that's why the theology of land is so important, more and more important, you know, because land is going to get even more precious to us as we watch what's happening to our planet because of what we've done to it. And he talks about the eyes of the Canaanites. Now, this speaks to me also because I was schooled in black theology in my country. People like Howard Thurman, who was really the, the teacher of Martin Luther King Jr. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who talks about the church from below. And Howard Thurman, who talks about the people who we have to listen to are the people with their backs against the wall. Well, my goodness. Jesus said that. Go back to Matthew 25. How much clearer can it be? Go to the last chapter of Luke, where again, they don't recognize him. And he said, how does Jesus demonstrate his personhood, his essence, to his apostles who don't recognize him? He says, put your hand in my wound. Feed me, I'm hungry. That's why I've come. That's how God becomes man. That's how God manifests. Hungry, suffering humanity. That's what it's about. It could not be more clear. So, seeing, uh, reading the Bible through the eyes of the Canaanites is Pryor's way of saying, go to Palestine if you want, if you want to understand God manifested. You know, I have another slide, I won't show it. It shows a, a black Jesus on the cross. It's classic liberation theology. The, the hungry, starving, suffering people, that's Jesus on the cross. In this particular painting, this South African um, artist uh, has people poking Jesus. Who are the Roman centurions? It's Forster and Werther. The... the, uh, the, the the head people of the, of the uh, 
apartheid regime. That was that context. Naim Atik talks about, a Palestinian liberation theologian talks about the Palestinians being Jesus on the cross. You can name you know, people living in, in terrible conditions in our cities. It's Jesus on the cross. We know this. Um, Mitri Rahab is another important name, a Palestinian, uh, Palestinian theologian. And Pryor actually gets this from Rahab. Uh, Rahab talks about reading the Bible through the eyes of the Canaanites. He says, most of our theology is much too Western. It's Eurocentric. We've forgotten who we're supposed to be taking care of. Um, he talks about South Africa or Australia. I would add the United, you know, the early settlers of America. You can add to that list about what, what it means to be a serious scholar of the Bible today. You have to be contextual. You have to be contextual. You cannot read the Bible in isolation. Because the Bible was contextual. My God, the Gospels were contextual. It was no accident that Jesus plops down at the time of, of the, the height of the Roman Empire, the worst evil that the world had ever seen. And that formed him, that shaped him. That was what his ministry was about. And Dmitri uh, Rahab is not afraid to be accused of being anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, which he is not. He says the New Testament introduces a new lens. So, what I am advocating on this particular issue, the issue of Palestine, is for an unapologetic Christianity. Because here's the elephant in the room. Since the end of World War II, when the Christian world stood before the ovens of Nazi Germany and said, what have we done? There has been a very appropriate, very commendable effort on the part of mainline Christianity, especially the Protestants, started in Germany, but it swept west very, very quickly, to do something about getting rid of the toxic anti-Judaism that had somehow infected the church. And that was a good thing to do. But you missed the boat. Because the way it expressed itself was to say, we were wrong about the Jews. We didn't replace them. God loves them best. The original covenant is in place. Let's give them the land. That's what happened. And it was an end run about what really needed to happen, which is, what is it about us that could have caused this horror? You don't solve that with a guilt offering. And that's what happened. So instead of Christians and the church institutionally taking a look at its own triumphalism and its own exceptionalism, it replaced it with Judeo-Christian exceptionalism. Leaves out a whole bunch of people, doesn't it? And its language is Zionism. So Zionism is an evil. Now, as a Jew, I understand all too well where Zionism comes from, where it came from, why at the end of the 19th century, when the emancipation of the Jews had failed and we were getting our asses kicked all over Europe, especially in Russia. 
that we would, have, would not have said, well, we should, be, we should have our own country, just you know, ethnic nationalism was the zeitgeist, it was what everyone else was doing. I understand the choice of, ethnic, of, 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 of political Zionism, but I regard it as a catastrophic wrong turn, that someday we will realize that we will forgive ourselves for it, hopefully, and it can't come too soon because we will in deep trouble with it. But what's happening in the meantime that the non-Jewish world, the institutional churches, are enabling that. They are basically educating in the West. They're educating their clergy in, in, the, in the schools of theology to elevate the Jews and to somehow do all kinds of twists and turns to find a way to say that the old covenant is still in force and that the Jews get the land. And it's just a way to one. It's one way to avoid confronting the fact that that cannot be um, the future of the world. Nationalism is not the direction. I used to say this. I'm not so sure it's true anymore. Obviously, it's not true anymore. But nationalism is not where we want our civilization to go. It will be the death of us. And you know that all too well. Sitting here, waiting for the other shoe to drop for Brexit. So we need to read our Bibles through the eyes of the Canaanites and say, what is Jesus telling us when he stands in front of that temple and says, it must come down and be replaced with my body? And where we can't worship on any mountains anymore. So let me just say something very quickly about the new anti-Semitism and then we'll, we'll break and we'll talk about, we'll be able to have a conversation. Um, in 2005, the Palestinians, Palestinian Civil Society issued a call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS. Um, it is legal. It is time-tested. It's an effective means of resistance to oppression. The state of Israel has gone crazy because it's working. It's not going to bring Israel to its knees economically. Never happened. It's not going to happen like it did in South Africa. But it doesn't look good. And Israel depends on having a positive image to the world, the only democracy in the Middle East, a bastion against those dirty you-know-whos who worship another god, the Muslims. Um, and Israelis are scared. Again, from the cradle, they are brought up to believe that the rest of the world hates them and that the only way that they are going to survive is with a strong army and building a fortress around them. So Israel's scared about it. It shows that it's working because people are saying, well, why should we boycott Israel? We thought Israel was the good guy. What's wrong with Israel? And so it's trying to delegitimize BDS and it's saying BDS is anti-Semitic. It's not. I know the people who run it. I, I know a lot about BDS. It's not anti-Semitic. It is not even anti-Israel. It's an attempt to do for Israel what the world did for South Africa through the sanctions, which was to liberate white and black from the evil of apartheid and give South Africa a chance to build a new decent society. It was saying, you can't do this anymore. That's what the world has to say to Israel. 
And so if you support BDS, or if you raise questions about Israel, you will be accused of being anti-Semitic. And that's all an orchestrated campaign of public relations that comes straight from the government of the state of Israel. So you just need to know that. And you need to know that there are certain rules that you're expected to follow. Nobody has written them down, but I'm showing them to you right now. You must not say or do anything that might make Jews uncomfortable. You can talk about Palestinian rights, but you must not even question fundamental assumptions of Zionism, that there needs to be a Jewish state, and that that's a good thing. And, by the way, you shall bless the two-state solution, which we all know uh, not only is no longer viable, but it was never intended. The State of Israel never intended for there to be a two-state solution, and the Western leaders, my leaders in particular, have gone along with it in a very, very cynical way because they knew that was true as well. But as long as you can keep repeating that mantra, it looks like maybe you want the Palestinians to have a state. They were never going to be granted a state because Zionism says that Israel has to have the whole territory. So we don't have two states. We have one state. It's an apartheid state. It's called Israel. And if you're going to be good followers of Jesus, and I will, I will uh, count myself in your midst, and I wish things had gone differently in the first century so that people wouldn't keep asking me when I converted to Christianity. You know, I'm just a good follower of Jesus. Um, you really need to stand up for the Palestinians because you're really standing up for Jesus when you do that. Um, I will, uh, and I will just say this last thing. There's a cross to pick up here, especially for clergy. Because the relationships that you've created with the Jewish community on institutional bases, on professional bases, on personal bases. I mean, you've got Jewish family members, some of you, I'm sure. Although there are not that many Jews here in Northern Ireland, but it, it, in, in the United States, everybody's got a Jewish family member. Um, these are precious relationships. And people come up to me. You know, I'll be doing this in a, you know, Steve will come up to me and he'll say, hey, I get what you're saying, but, you know, I've got this thing going on with the rabbi down the block. How can I do this without blowing that up? And I'll say, you know, I've got a lot of compassion for you. I, I don't have good news for you. You're going to have to make that choice. It's a cross. And it's not your fault. We set that up by saying we have a Jewish state and hands off. Well, again, let us have our family argument. Put your own house in order. That's all for now. Thanks. Thank you to Mark. Um, the series goes on next week. Desi Alexander next week on Isaiah. So Desi Alexander on Isaiah next week at the same time. Do not miss it.